When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, today we're going to start the episode on a different note. Uh, I have Chris Watkins here, a black hockey fan and analyst. He wrote about the anthem kneeling social injustice issue that, I mean, everyone knows about by now. He wrote about it on SB Nation earlier this week. Very well written. Uh, you can Google that and find it. Um, but uh, I guess just to recap, uh, the last week has been kind of a gong show in regards to uh, the anthem issue, it all started with Donald Trump and the NFL uh, calling them sons of bitches. And uh, everyone knows that backstory, but it entered the hockey world when uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins accepted an invite to the White House during uh, this entire mess and uh, really set, set off a firestorm uh, online, offline, and every player seems to have been uh, asked about it. Um, and the Penguins haven't backed down from, from their decision. Uh, Mike Sullivan says, you know, them accepting the invite has nothing to do with, with taking a stance on the issue. Uh, and they're going October 10th. And uh, Sidney Crosby has said, don't read into our decision to go. It's strictly based on wanting to go to the White House and follow tradition. It has nothing to do with what's going on in the States, what's going on worldwide in regards to social injustice, racism, etc., um, George LaRock, a black, a former black player, called the decision an embarrassment. Um, and you go down the line, there's a, there's a few other black players that have chimed in. Joel Ward, probably the most uh, the most talked about, and rightfully slow, rightfully so. Uh, he is actually just today. This is uh, we're recording this on Thursday, an hour or so ago. He came out and said, "Guys, I'm not going to kneel during the anthem, but I really want to have a conversation about what's going on." Um, so he released a long statement and, and maybe we'll read part of that, uh, in a bit here, but, um, I want to get Chris's opinion because, um, you know, me and Matthew Collar talked about this off the top of the last episode and I left thinking, you know, we're two white guys. How do we really relate to the situation on the core level? Uh, so I wanted to bring Chris in because he wrote such a, a nice piece for SB Nation. Um, so you know, after a long-winded intro, Chris, how's it going? And uh, let's talk about this issue. Yeah, no, and, and thanks again for for even having this discussion. Uh, I, I think, as you said, one of the one of the key underlying issues behind this whole um, issue for the NHL is the lack of people of color and, and people um, with that particular experience to be able to speak on this involved in the game of hockey, and so. Uh, for better or worse, uh, I, I've probably been given more of a platform than maybe, you know, some people may feel I'm deserving of just because there, there aren't a lot of go see people on this issue. Um, but, uh, you know, just, you know, to quickly follow up with your breakdown, I think, you know, uh, what has happened is obviously, uh, President Trump came out and spoke directly against, uh, you know, players that are protesting and sort of, uh, implored owners of NFL teams to fire uh, any players that were, you know, caught protesting the flag. Which is just um, ridiculous uh, in general. You can't just fire a guy for doing that. But anyways, continue. Exactly, yeah. And so, and so, uh, you know, the the first part is obviously the players have made it very clear that they're not protesting the flag in general. 
um, but p- protesting police brutality and, and being very clear that that is the, the core directive of what they were talking about. Um, going back to the FE piece I wrote, uh, the, the main point I was getting across was because of sort of that lack of diversity in NHL locker rooms from a player perspective and also within the media covering the sport, um, and the owners that, uh, uh run the team, um, because of that lack of perspective, uh, it, it becomes very hard to see, uh, how the NHL and the Penguins in particular, um, sort of necessarily felt compelled to release this statement about their attending the White House at the time that they did. I mean, it was just at the very, least tone deaf um, and negligent um, in the worst case scenario where it, in this uh, sort of back and forth between uh, athletes and, and the president, um, athletes of different color and, and other sports, the, the Penguins came out and sort of said the statement. Um, and, and the reason why that is twofold, obviously the timing of it, uh, which was just not great at all. Um, the Penguins had already committed to going to the White House, not 100% guarantee if they would have just went to the White House uh, in two weeks, on, I believe on October 11th when they said um, there would have been much less uh, build-up to the backlash. I mean, there would have been some backlash, but they would not have gotten the immediate backlash that they got. Um, the second piece of it is is just, uh, and sorry, quickly back to that point, um, even if they were agreeing to that uh, and, and saying that specifically, oh, we've already obliged ourselves to go, they could have come out with a PR statement said, um, while we don't necessarily agree with the president's statements, we still accept the invitation. However, we see this as an opportunity to have a discussion about the right of uh, athletes as individuals and the right to freedom of protest and, and, and freedom of speech and all that stuff. They could have spun it in a positive manner. Um, exactly, yeah. The they gave out. Uh, so, so that's part of one of it. Uh, and I think part two of it is just sort of speaking to the underlying culture of hockey where um, the NHL in particular is not really spoken out on social issues in any capacity. Um, and so I pointed this out in the SBTs where – uh, hockey is for everyone is a big tenet of what the NHL is trying to promote in terms of diversity, but they did not speak out against the HB2 law in North Carolina with the Carolina Panthers, uh, hurricanes play, um, that discriminated against transgender individuals in bathrooms and public places. They didn't speak out of, you know, about that. They didn't speak out against the you know, various racial inequalities, uh, that other players and other sports had, had spoken out about. And so the NHL had taken a sideline view on social issues, yet somehow interjected themselves into this particular conversation. And so it seems sort of hypocritical just in terms of the response uh, that you come out with this at this time. Uh, you've taken no, you know, the NHL has tried to play neutral in all uh, particular conversations, but by interjecting themselves into this one in particular, they've taken what, perceive, uh, what is perceived to be as a stance in support of President Trump. Um, and, and, and it just really reads to the overall underlying nature of hockey. The demographics of it is a 93% white sport is a sport mostly played by non-U.S. players, which is, uh, understandable, um, a cause of sort of the lack of, uh, uh, communication around these particular racial issues happening in the U.S. Um, and it is also a sport that heavily tends towards a more, uh, a wealthier demographic, both in terms of players and fans. Uh, and they may be removed from these day-to-day conversations. And so that plays a big part of it. Um, but there's a lot of other underlying issues uh, at play here that I don't think that the Penguins in particular, but also the NHL, have really addressed and, and have had multiple days to figure it out. And I really haven't spoken to, spoken to rectify the situation at all. Yeah, and the NHLPA came out and said that they are in support of any player that wants to protest peacefully. So... 
I mean, they're sort of coming uh, at it. I think they released this Wednesday, so you know, a few days mm-hmm. after the fact. Um, but but regardless, right. I guess it's it's better than silence. Um, uh, sure. The thing with the NHL is they had this declaration of principles, this, this big you know meeting of of the hockey minds uh, a few weeks ago, a month max, and they came out with with all these principles, and it was heavy on inclusivity. So it's 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 tough to take those declarations. Uh, seriously at this point really right I mean like here's a major issue here's your mm-hmm. your your sport interjected with it because of the Penguins in the White House and I mean even though there's only roughly 30 black players in the NHL there's not zero I mean you still have this portion of your player base that needs to be um, I guess supported and 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 cared for um, so you know, to get back to Joel Ward, he so he on Twitter today on on this is Thursday he released a pretty long statement and it was really well written and he got all his points across. Um, one part I want to read out was uh, he says I also feel that the original message that was trying to be communicated has been lost. The focus has shifted to the act of kneeling itself or to a protest of the flag or the military. What are we really talking about here? Um, that that's. And then, and then he goes, he goes into, uh, you know, personal experiences and, and where he finds himself uh, in this discussion. What did you think of, of Ward's statement and uh, I guess the reaction from black players across the league? Because they're put in this, this awkward yeah. spot, right? Where they're, they're sort of the poster boys for the sport. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll quickly speak to an anecdote I, I talked about a little bit earlier on Twitter this yeah. week um, and directly to Oscar Robinson. Um, great NBA basketball player, basically the LeBron of the 1960s. And he was talking about in college as he integrated the University of Cincinnati where he played college basketball. Um, he was playing down in Texas at a tournament, um, and the rest of his team was white. And so they were staying in this plush hotel in, in Houston. And one of the hotel managers informed the coach that Oscar Robinson, a black player, couldn't stay there. Um, and so basically they kicked him out. Um, and Oscar Robinson was forced to stay at a dorm nearby. And in his autobiography, he writes that, yes, while I was mad that I got kicked out of the hotel, I didn't think it was fair. What concerned me even more was uh, for all the talk that we had about teamwork and, and working together towards a, a common goal, no one came along with me. My coach didn't stand up for me. I was sitting in the room by myself, um, and I felt ostracized and alone. And oftentimes uh, in these types of situations, when you're the only you know African-American or, or black Canadian player or are the only minority in the room and no one else is speaking on your behalf. That's what it often feels like. And that's how I feel like the NHL response has been so far, where guys like Wayne Simmons and Josh O'Sang and Joel Ward have been willing to uh, take a stand. JT Brown has been at the forefront of this as well from the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, but no one else is really speaking on their behalf. Uh, Blake Wheeler um, yeah. from the Winnipeg Jets is the only prominent player I know uh, of uh, non-black descent that has really spoken out on this. And so that's where a lot of the criticism has been levied against a player like Sidney Crosby, who by all accounts is a great and wonderful individual, has never caused any issues off the ice. But um, in terms of leadership, yes, you can lead your team to Stanley Cups, and that is one form of leadership. But similar to the criticism that uh, fell with Michael Jordan in his playing career, uh, where he never took a stand on any social issue, um, leadership does not just extend to, you know, your your sporting exploits. And, and so... Uh, sort of requiring only the black players to speak out on this. I'm sure to uh, show the dereliction of leadership on the part of the NFL, uh, NHL players um, and the NHL uh, 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 body as a whole from Gary Bettman on down. 
Um, it's just really disappointing that um, there still hasn't been quite a, a urge to at least even understand what's going on. A lot of players have said, you know, I don't really know the full facts of the issue and um, don't really have the capacity to speak on it. Um, but I do think that that really isn't all that great of an excuse. The opportunity is there. Um, it's just up on themselves to take it. And in general, just for NHL players to speak out on behalf of something, um, there's generally this approach of, you know, don't rock the boat, don't make yourself stand out. But I do think in times like this, it does not have to be this issue in particular. I can understand that. But I think in the general, regardless of what the issue is, NHL players have taken a stance of not saying anything to, to come across as controversial or bring in attention to themselves. And in times like this, I think that is not necessarily the best approach. Yeah, you can tell there's there's hesitation in guys' voices. There's um, an unwillingness to to rock the boat, as you explained, which is which is concerning. But it's so rooted in the, in the hockey culture that it's uh, it's not it's not surprising in any way. Yeah, and, and even even with the fan base uh, of the of the NHL and stuff, um, you know, I, I I've met a variety of fans uh, in a bunch of different cities and has. Most of them have been the most amazing people ever, but even um, this sort of responses to them, and this is not just the NHL, um, even the Dallas Cowboys, they knelt before the anthem, so technically not during the anthem in terms of disrespecting the flag and so on and so forth, and we're still booed. And it's also like, you know, uh, people will still bring up Kerry Fraser, you know, not calling the call on Wayne Gretzky in, in 93 um, as a... Uh, indignity against the Toronto Maple Leafs and stuff. And so they can recognize, you know, yeah. what they perceive as justice, uh, when it happens to something that's important to them. And, and so it becomes clear that, um, where the dividing line is, is that this issue isn't important to a lot of people within the NHL community. And, and that's just kind of sad. You know, you can't be mad about everything. And I understand that there's plenty of issues that I know I should care more about, like domestic violence, uh, among athletes and, you know, uh, representation among sports mascots and m- many things of that nature that I don't give enough attention to. But I do think, uh, at the very least, you should be neutral on the topic. Um, and, you know, in my personal opinion, either you're well informed or neutral and, and not stand on it one way or the other. Um, I don't feel that that's necessarily the case. And it's something that the sport hopefully will look to, to get better at as time goes on. Yeah. The NHL, um, for a variety of reasons, is 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 the fourth sport in America, fourth sport uh, in in terms of probably participation. I'm, I'm I don't know the numbers in front of me, but definitely popularity among the big four, and they're only ever going to get more popular. Like if you want an extra incentive to to stand up NHL, it would be hey, maybe there's some fans out there that don't feel included yeah. in your party. Here's your chance. Here's your olive branch. And I know that's kind of a weird way to look at it, but like. At the very least, it would have been a very good PR um, move uh, by the Penguins, by the league, whatever, to to be like, "Hey, this is not cool. We're you know we're letting everyone have their their rights, and we're allowing uh, people to decide for themselves, and not have this blanket term across the league, uh, this sort of groupthink mentality, which is so ingrained in hockey culture." Right, and, and quickly because you know we can spend uh, hours on this topic, yeah. but that's exactly it. Where um, the reason why the NHL lags behind the other uh, uh, major North American sports is precisely that they have definitely cornered the, the market of of the Caucasian uh, uh, male um, specifically, but uh, definitely have not made the inroads in in terms of those minority communities, and that's reflected 
and the dollars that's available to players uh, in the salary cap in terms of hockey-related revenue, um, in terms of TV ratings and so on and so forth, where just that sort of uh, inability to sort of connect with someone outside of the core demographic has hurt the uh, you know off-ice sort of perception of the product. And you know, if you think about the potential athletes that could be playing. Uh, NHL hockey, uh, Canada itself is going through a basketball revolution where all these stars are coming into the NBA from Canada and think, well, those would have been great hockey players. So you can see the trickle down effects of that particular approach. Um, and the hope is that maybe an incident like this opens the eyes to the NHL, um, to say that, hey, maybe we're not taking the best, uh, the best approach to this particular topic or this particular demographic. Maybe this is something we need to look at going forward to help grow the game. Um, and, and like you said, it's a very, uh, capitalistic, you know, bottom line driven approach to it. But oftentimes that's what gets Gary Bettman and his crew to, to move in the right direction uh, around these uh, issues. All right, Chris, I, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on here. And uh, I hope listeners got a different perspective on things because, like I said, you know, me, I'm a white guy. I've never really faced these challenges that, that people are fighting for. I can relate to them in, in sort of a, an emotional sense, but, but not in a personal sense. I can't really. Um, fully grasp the situation and 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 you are able to at least lend uh, some sort of perspective on that yeah well thank you uh, very much for having me on from the center of the hockey universe this is the off the post podcast So, Travis Yost of TSN.ca, what is up? It has been a while. You were a regular on Off the Post last year, and we finally connected for uh, the first one of this season. Yeah, and by the way, it, it took a while for me to get regular status on this podcast. So now that I've come back one more time, what is the next status I can try and achieve? Uh, Ring of Honor is... Uh... Is probably your next. Step. Is there any who's in there? No, I'm just making stuff up. Matthew Collar is probably <laughs> is probably the most common guy, and he's been on like six times. Who is? I, Matthew Collar of uh, ESPN. Okay, he's yeah, been yeah. he's been on. Uh, I'd say six times. You're at like already four. Like I try to mix it up a fair bit. So you're you're up there. All right, good. If I, if there's a Ring of Honor, I want to be first ballot. That's all I'm going to ask for. <laughs> That's fair. All right. Um, so I actually had him on for, for part one of this season preview, and, and part two will be the Eastern Conference. Um, I want to talk to you about the heavyweights in this conference and teams that you're interested in and, and the storylines revolving around those teams. Um, so... Uh, let's talk about the Atlantic first. I think we can bypass a team like Detroit because, let's face it, there's uh, there's not much to talk about with them in regards to uh, this season. We could talk about them long term, but this season you're looking at Anthony Mantha highlight reels and uh, maybe Andreas Athanasiu if if that contract so, situation. So here's what I'm gonna say. Here here's what I'm gonna say about Detroit. I will posit, and I'll put an expansion team aside because I think that's fair. I will argue that Detroit. Is the most boring team in 2017-18, and that is a title that's been hard to wrestle away from the New Jersey Devils. I I think Detroit will have that will have that crown this year. Okay, there you go. See, now we're on the same page. I I think they're not worthy talking about. You're saying they're boring. (laughs) Let Let's move on to. I think they're. If (laughs) If you think of the Atlantic, uh, I think the the tier above Detroit 
is uh, Buffalo, Florida, Ottawa. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. Um, I, the, I think it's Buffalo, Florida, with the chance of it being Ottawa as well. I, I've never. I'm so intrigued by this Eric Carlson story in Ottawa. I mean, the guy. It sounds like his leg was sawed in half, and he's out skating after like three months. And like, if you watch the videos and you listen to the local media, they're like, "Oh, he looks amazing. He looks incredible." And then you read his post game quotes, and it's like, "Yeah, they sawed my leg in half," and you know, it still doesn't feel right. And the thing I keep coming back to is. If you remember when he had, when he was post Achilles, and he was, first off, he recovered remarkably quickly and he was immediately insanely good again. Yeah. But he was, for like, I would say 30, 40, 50 games after that return, he was kind of shaky defensively. Like, he was still a world beater um, on both ends of the ice, but like, occasionally you would see some random guy like blow by him and you're like, oh, that's weird. Eric Carlson doesn't move like that. And, and I, I just think Ottawa is so, again, this is the case when you're so reliant on one player. And, look, he is a game-breaker. You could probably make the argument he's the third or fourth best player in the league. But if he is 80 or 90% of what he was last year, I, I just I have a tough time seeing where they finish in the standings. And, and by saying have a tough time, I mean having you know seeing them actually earn another playoff first. Uh, they, they are just so reliant on him. It, it really is incredible. Well, uh, outside of that, I, I actually think Buffalo, it, the bar has been so low for the Sabres for basically four years now. But I, I thought they had, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I thought they had one of the best off seasons this summer. I mean, they added a lot of really solid depth talent, got a, a defenseman, a Marco Scandella, who I think is really going to help. And you say, okay, Travis, it's Marco Scandella. My counter-argument is, go look at what they've been icing in the top four yeah. for the last, like, three, four years. I mean, it is ghastly. Uh, and, and if and if Scandella can, if he plays with Rasmus Ristolainen and they form an okay pairing, I think Buffalo can be a lot better. Not to mention the fact that they now have a Robin Leonard-Chad Johnson duo in goal that's pretty good. I, and I would argue definitely underrated in the grand scheme of goaltending duos in the league. So I, I'm actually a, a bit excited about Buffalo. I'm not excited at all about Florida. I don't know what direction they're taking their team. They've overhauled their roster in all of the bad ways. I mean, I know it's been – the horse is so far in the ground, it'd be, you need to excavate it with a caterpillar at this point. But <laughs> it, the, the Jonathan Marcheseau and Riley Smith situations were bizarre. Um, it, they, they seem to have lost like four or five reasonably talented players. They've given up on Jason Demers. Uh, who did not have a good year last year, but again, they got basically nothing for him in the return package in Jamie McGinn. I, I, I thought they were a big net negative this summer. Uh, I, I don't see, I honestly, if, if I had to make a bet, I would actually say Florida 7, Detroit 8, and Buffalo 6. And, and I think, it, you know, Sabre Saints might not be thrilled with 6, but 6 could be in the hunt until the last week or two of the season, which is substantially better than where they've been. Um, and then Ottawa is the big X factor again. Like I, I, I kind of agree with that grouping, but I do think Ottawa, if Carlson is fine, I think Ottawa can actually move up into that top four. But it, it's just, it's just such a big question when you have such a catastrophic injury and surgery to a key player, and you're banking on him being one of the best players in the world. If that doesn't pan out, go look at the rest of Ottawa's roster and especially their defensive situation. It is not great. Yeah, a lot, a lot to unpack there. But with the Senators, I mean, last year was such a mirage, even with Eric Carlson playing out of his mind. 
uh, that I don't know if the organization is caught up in in the in the moment, so to speak, of of the of the playoff run. But I mean, they didn't they didn't do anything substantial in the off season, and they seem to be uh, fairly confident that they'll be able to to contend this year. Uh, I don't know if I believe that. Um, I mean, I didn't I didn't believe that that they were anything special last year. So when they bring in Nate Thompson and Johnny Oduya, but lose Mark Mathot, Tommy Wingles, Victor Stahlberg, like that's more or less. Uh, don't forget, don't forget a multi-year extension or multi-year contract for Nate Thompson. That that is that is one of the worst signings this summer. Yeah, so like like let's just say you know they break even for argument's sake. Like this team is is a year older. I, I like Turris, I like Hoffman, I like Stone, but a lot of their other players are overvalued, I believe, by the organization. Um, and Thomas Shabbat should be very very intriguing to see how he fits in as an NHL player. He looks fantastic as a junior. And then obviously they have Craig Anderson. So like they have these, these sort of uh, fallback guys, uh, Anderson, Carlson, uh, that can sort of carry them on their back for, for certain periods, but overall not a huge fan. And that's why they're in this group with, with Florida a team that a lot of people can't figure out. And you hit on it a bit. Like how, how does Margisol go and Riley Smith both go to Vegas? Um, Jason Demers trade was, I don't know what was going on there, but they have a new coach in Bob Bugner. So you go, okay, maybe something, uh, you know, will be shaken up, shooken up there. Um, I don't know. Owen Tippin might make the team. He's a, an interesting guy, but overall I don't see them um, getting back to, I guess their, their pre, uh, pre, pre tumultuous season state, <laughs> not last season, but the season before they were looking, they were looking pretty good. Um, and then Buffalo, you expect to make, uh, you know, a, a fairly big step forward in, in regards to their their trajectory, but not, as you noted, not necessarily a playoff team, but, but you know, getting Eichel going, uh, he's had a great start to his career, but getting him, um, you know, sort of having that full season under his belt where he puts up probably around 80 points or so if all goes well. Um, and then you have a new coach in there as well, Phil Housley, new GM, Jason Botterill. Like, things are looking up in Buffalo. I like the Nathan Beaulieu uh, acquisition on top of Scandella. Um, there's a lot to like. The reinforcements were pretty good this summer, but I still don't think they're necessarily uh, going to contend for a playoff spot. Yeah, John, so we we should raise one question here. And not, I, I don't want to make this half of an audible podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning. Okay. I don't know that there's a team that's been more mentioned – around the Matt Duchesne trade yes. talks than Ottawa. And the one the one core strength of the Ottawa Senators, and it was one of the reasons why I thought they were a much they looked a much better team in the playoffs than the regular season, is because their core talent, like their best five man unit and their second best five man unit, and by the way, both of those probably have Carlson on the ice, like they are really good. Like and it, it's just it's amazing how incredibly crappy they are when Carlson comes off the ice, but for the 30 minutes that he is playing in the postseason and the 27 he is during the regular season, they're a very good team. And the, the reason why I bring up Matt Duchesne is, uh, again, another, like, marquee, I don't know if Marquis too strong, but a, a definitely a difference maker and a player that definitely looks like he needs a change in environment. The, the name that's kind of been floating around is, oh, does this make sense for Colorado? I, I can't believe Colorado would even consider it, but... It, it, the, the name that every GM in the league apparently loves that I have no idea why is Cody Ceci. I mean, Cody Ceci has been objectively bad for <laughs> basically his entire NHL career. He's playing out of his element. He's playing too many minutes. He's 
not the offensive puck mover that people thought. He's probably a bit underrated defensively, but he has adds almost no offense offensively. Uh, if they could create a package with CC, maybe a really good pick and maybe something else for a player like Matthew Shane and Colorado bites at it, how much does that change where Ottawa moves Because that's a, that's a big difference maker oh, yeah. that they can plug into their lineup there. I agree. Um, and then in the in the the third tier, like we're moving up here, uh, this is more uh, playoff territory. I think the way that things are breaking down, in, in my estimation, is four teams from both divisions. So Metro gets four, Atlantic gets four, and I think the second the the the, the second from the top tier in the Atlantic is Montreal and Boston, and. Uh, I, I'm higher on Boston than Montreal, but I think at the end of the season they'll be close in in points and and maybe they're they're wild card teams. But um, there's something about Boston where the results just weren't there last year. Last year the underlying numbers were with with their shot attempt uh, differential, with uh, you know the the way that they had this this really deadly trio, this top three that's really high: uh, Bergeron, Marchand, and, and Pasternak, and you know, you you see McAvoy come in and, and, and sort of help the transition uh, as as Chara gets gets out of the league or, or or is weeded out of the league as a as an older dude. Um, they played really well under Bruce Cassidy last year, so let's see what they do with a full season. So uh, Boston, I'm I'm fairly high on, and then um, when you actually get to to Montreal. <laughs> The thing with them is I, I don't like putting much stock in into preseason, but they've looked pretty bad. I think they have nine goals in six games. Uh, again, you know, asterisk on that. But there's something about that Montreal team where, you know, if you take out Carey Price, how bad is this team? Are they, are they I don't know, 25th in the league? Like, Carey Price is so important to that team. And I don't know if Jonathan Drouin uh, is really the, the absolute answer up front but you know, he's going to be a great addition to that group but they also lost Radulov so I think both teams are are in are in the second tier below Toronto and Tampa see this is why I I kind of caution I'm I, we disagree here which is great I, I don't think we totally disagree in terms of how they actually rank and stack today but this is why I say don't rule out an Ottawa don't rule out a Buffalo just yet yeah I am kind of cool on both Montreal and Boston. Um, and I, I go back and forth about which team I'm less optimistic about. It, Montreal has a, a goal-scoring issue like I've, I've never seen before for really what is otherwise a decent, if not good, hockey team. It, first off, I mean, a lot of this has to, be, has to be attributed to the fact that they took one of the premier offensive defensemen and traded him for a guy who is a great defensive defender but has for eight years in a row – been a drag on his team's shot generation, his scoring chance generation, the goal generation, and that's Shea Weber. Like his, if you go look at the numbers, Shea Weber's individual counting numbers might be fine. Guy's got a great shot. He's a good power play weapon. But teams don't really score a lot of goals for when he's on the ice. And when he is your most prominent defenseman, that kind of has a drag on your, your top line, second line's production. Yeah. Hey, furthering the issue, though, is you can't put it all on Shea Weber. I, the team just doesn't have a lot of weaponry. I thought, again, we, I said net negative uh, in reference to another team before. I thought they were a net negative in the summer, too. Like, as much as the, the, the contract negotiation hand-wringing was fair, like, you don't want to go as far and long 
on players who are 30 plus or getting close to it or well exceeding it. A guy like Alex Radulov has definitely played past his prime, but Alex Radulov was really, really good last year across the board, first line numbers. Like, no doubt about it. Every key performance indicator said Radulov's a first pair, uh, first line guy. They lost him. I mean, he's gone. Okay. So they made a contractual decision to move on. The bet here is that Jonathan Drouin, who really hasn't shown that at the NHL level, certainly not first-line material, is going to be his replacement along with maybe, you know, in piecemeal, like an Alex Hemsky type, uh, a couple of other players are moving up the lineup. Like, I just don't know in some, like, I think Bill Simmons said this once on his podcast, and I was like, huh, yeah. that's actually really smart, even though I know he's still somewhere else. And it's, you know, four quarters don't always make a dollar. And, and I think that's what Montreal's trying to do here. Hmm. They're basically making a play that, Two or three or four guys can replace the one guy who was on their top line, uh, and I, I just don't see it playing out that way. So I, I, I'm, I think Montreal will be a playoff team. I just I think there's going to be 50 games next year where it's like, oh, Montreal's won one in the third. Like th- that's what it's going to be, and every marginal goal is going to be worth so much in terms of win expectancy. Now Boston, like there's two key 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 issues for the Bruins. Yeah, I think I'm the last homeowner on Tukarask Island, but I'm, <laughs> I'm looking to sell. Like, I, the house is on the market. No one's really biting. But, like, my, my argument in support of Tukarask for basically three years in a row has been, yeah, but he's pretty much, I think he actually still is the all-time safe percentage leader in the NHL. Like, it, it, yes, he has played on some great, historically great defensive teams in Boston in years past. But for the most part, like, Rask has been really, really good. The problem is, the question that the Bruins have to answer is, where did this random, like, 120-game downturn, is it real or is it just a long run of randomness? And I, I've been betting on long run of randomness, but at some point... That's a really long point, run of I don't randomness. know that we're there yet, but some point, somewhere now down the road, someone's going to say, maybe Tukarask isn't the goalie that he used to be. And if that's the case, they have absolutely nothing behind him, number one. And number two, they have zero, zero depth at the forward and defensive positions. They are so reliant on their first line, first pair, maybe more than any other team in the league, that if if they are going through it and the Bergeron line doesn't have a goal and you know and or Tukarask is having an off night, they lose the game every single time. I mean that's that's essentially what the Boston Ottawa series was last year in the playoffs. It was hey, by the way, here's here's a team that can kind of neutralize that Bergeron line. And then even a team with crappy depth like Ottawa can feast on Boston. And, and that's, that's kind of a, one of the core issues with, with the Bruins team. And it's why, like, we can talk about these teams as playoff teams, but quite, to be quite honest, they don't, neither one is very good or, or a legitimate, like, odds-on favorite to make the playoffs. Like, I could easily see an Ottawa or Buffalo jumping one of these teams. And I, 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 I think I'm more, I think I'm more amenable to Boston having a better season than, than Montreal, but I think both are seriously at risk. Imagine if uh, if the same thing as last year happens and Tampa runs into a string of injuries. I mean, that's just going to open up the Atlantic even more because it's it's a weird division where you know Tampa seems to be uh, the the clear powerhouse or or on paper the best team, and then Toronto's this upstart team that has a ton of potential. But after that, it like like you you just kind of you just kind of uh, drew it out. Uh, like there's a lot of okay to good teams buried in there, and then you know at the bottom it's 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 pretty dire. But how high are you on the Leafs? Because I'm in I'm in the the Toronto bubble, so I'm not sure 
how it's spreading, but <laughs> the expectations are quite high. And I don't think they're they're unrealistically high. Maybe, 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 you know, day to day, but overall, I think this their their forward depth is quite good. Um you you expect Matthews to continue and maybe even exceed his uh totals from last year because you know he showed with his shot generation, he showed with his consistency that that he's a real deal. It wasn't a fluke. You expect Marner and, and Nylander to, to continue. Um, I guess, you know, Freddie Anderson, he's a great number one, and or not great, but he, he's a good number one. Um, but you, you wonder if he goes down, did, did the wheels fall off? Because uh, they've had trouble finding a good backup. But, I mean, if, if that's what we're talking about with Toronto, I think they're in a good spot. So, like, I am obviously outside of the Toronto bubble, and I swoon over their playmakers. For as much as people love Mitch Marner, and Mitch Marner is incredible, like I'm just over the just as much over the moon on Nylander. Like I think they're both incredible playmakers. These guys, they they get a ton of of talk. There's a ton of talk generated about these players in the Toronto bubble, but in the grand scheme of things, it always seems like these guys play second fiddle to yeah. Austin Matthews, which kind of makes sense. But I think it I think it captures the spirit of how many playmakers this team has. Like. William Nylander was an afterthought for in, in the grand scheme of like Toronto playmakers for like most of the year last year. And this is a guy whose five on five numbers were arguably as good as any player on the team. Uh, they, they are, they are deep at the forward position. I, I think the blue line has questions and, and it more ties into this. And this is where I think what, what keeps you up at night. If you're Mike Babcock, I think it kept the Leafs fans up last night as they watched it empirically play out. Mm-hmm. They don't have. The five-man unit, and this is—I think—I think this legitimately keeps them from being an elite team. And this is why I say they're very good, not elite. I—I I don't have full confidence that they can hold a lead and win a game. Do, do they, you think... they are extremely talented and diverse offensively, but they have struggled off and on pretty much all season last year in the defensive third. I think a lot of that ties into the fact that they're still trying to figure out what they have in Morgan Riley, and this is like what year five, year six of the Morgan Riley experiment. Jake Gardner has been their best defender for some time, and while he's a great defender, I, no one is going to say he's some elite high-end shutdown defender. And I, I just I don't know like if it's if if it's two one and Toronto has that lead, and by the way that matters quite a bit. Like you've got to work yep. to get that lead, and that's why Toronto's a good team. My my pushback is how confident am I in Toronto to hold that lead versus a Tampa Bay versus a Pittsburgh versus a Washington? And it's just not in the same class. And and I think that you know. That's something that will come. Like they can go out and get that. Maybe it's a maybe it's a top four defender that they add on the market. They were sniffing around Travis Hamonic. I thought that would have made a lot of sense for the for the Leafs, especially on the defensive side. Um, maybe that's a, a player they add at the trade deadline. We'll, we'll see. Or, or maybe this is a, an internal development piece where a lot of their young players take another step forward. But like I hold my breath sometimes watching them in the defensive zone, and it's not enough to make them even a decent team. Like they're still very very good. But that is the sort of stuff that separates Stanley Cup contender from good playoff team. And that's why I think Toronto, while I am very confident that they are one of the two best teams in that division, I'm also very confident that they are the second best team. Like, I cannot in good faith put them ahead of Tampa Bay. No. And in regards to the defense, the the narrative of training camp has been who is going to be the number six and who's going to be the number seven. And it's mostly all about that because – they signed Ron Haynes and, and immediately said, this guy's going in our top four. So there's no sort of discussion over that. So, um, you know, you have Hainsey, Riley, uh, Carrick, 
uh, Zaitsev. Like, you have all these guys that, that aren't going to lose their jobs, but, you know, the team is still missing that number one. And, and it's interesting that you bring up the five-man unit because, um, you know, Morgan Riley's had a million defense partners. Like, clearly they want him to be part of that number one pair, but they have not found a match. Um, and, yeah, to, to move on to Tampa and, and wrap up the Atlantic, um, I just – Last year was a mulligan, right? Like, I mean, that's all we can really say about it. Like, this this team has an excellent coach, excellent GM, excellent players. Like, there's no real big holes to to poke. And even, like, you know, signing Kunitz, what, what does that guy do? He compliments good players, star players. And I would imagine he will be put on an, in, in an opportunity or, or have the opportunity to do so in Tampa. Um, Dan Girardi, weird signing. Don't know what they were doing there, but <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um and I'm looking forward to a guy, like watching a guy like Braden Point really uh, kind of step into the limelight. Uh, he's playing with Stamkos. He's playing with Kucherov. And uh, I read a story the other day. I think it was Tampa Bay Times. Uh, it was a good story about this guy's just hungry for the puck. And and when I thought of that, I, I immediately thought of, of Zach Hyman and, and the constant um, fretting over, you know, why is he on the first line? I, I'm fine with him being on the first line because these stars need a guy to go get the puck a guy to maybe uh, absorb a check and then they pass it to the other two dudes. Like, I don't know. I, I, I think I see Braden, Braden point as, as a more skilled Zach Hyman in a way where uh, if he slides into that first line, like it can work wonders. The, the biggest compliment I think you could pay. First off, the Dan Girardi signing was absolutely lunacy. Like <laughs> the guy's not an NHL anymore. I'm sorry. No offense. Like at some point, I'm sure he was very good. He has been in NHL for years. I have no idea what they're thinking or if they're going to play him frequently or what. Um, but but the biggest compliment you can pay Tampa Bay is this. Who is their best player? And if you ask who's Tampa Bay's best player, Kudrow. people think about it. Hedman. And that is absolutely crazy for a team that has Steven Stamkos, who would be the best player on, what, 23, 24 teams in the yeah. league? Because yeah. I think there's a legitimate point that the answer is what you said, Nikita Kucherov. And when you have a situation where you have two players that are so freaking good that there's a legitimate debate about who's better than the other, you're basically the Pittsburgh Penguins, right? Like, that, yeah. that's, that's the other team that comes to mind. It's, oh, you have Crosby and you have Malkin, and if Crosby's not going, Malkin's going well, and if Malkin's not going well, Crosby's going well. It is such a luxury for them to have those two weapons, not to mention all of the other players behind them. Tampa Bay is deep, talented. They don't really have many holes. Um, I, I, I do chalk last year off to a write-up, and I could very well be wrong. I could be wrong and that we could have been over-calculating or misstating how much of an injury impact that team had. But, I mean, I it, there was a great data point. I wish I could remember it off the top of my head. But I, I want to say that one of, uh, like one of the most featured players on Tampa Bay's first line last year was Braden Point, if you looked at minutes. And, like, Braden Point's a really fine player, like you pointed out. But he was he had essentially become like not just a first liner. He's like, we need you to be the guy. And I think Brady yeah, was looking around like me. Like, do you see this roster? And the coach was probably like, like John Cooper was probably like, yeah, but they're all hurt. And that's kind of the season that Tampa Bay had. So yeah, I'm all in again on Tampa Bay. Um, probably betting again on a, a Tampa Bay versus Calgary uh, Stanley Cup final, like I did last year. That one didn't play out. No, <laughs> not at all. Not, I think it was, actually, I think I said, I think I, I think I bucked it and said Washington Calgary uh, at some point. Um, so maybe it wasn't Tampa Bay. So maybe I avoided that. But yeah, like I, I'm all in on Tampa. They, they're one of the deepest, most talented teams in the league. They should, they should win that division. It would be a disappointment if they didn't. To be perfectly honest. Yeah. Let's talk about the the Metro. So the way I'm seeing it play out is is four from each division. 
And in the Metro, Pittsburgh, Washington, uh, New York Rangers are going to lock up a spot. And I think Carolina will narrowly beat out uh, Columbus for the fourth spot. What do you think of that layout? Yeah, Carolina is the big, the big question mark. And this is like, what, year two or year three of Carolina being the big question mark? Yeah. As much as people want to say, well, I need to see it before I start putting the Hurricanes in, reality is, I've made this analogy before, if you take away the nests in a hockey game, Carolina looks like one of the best teams in the league because they're always playing in your zone. The problem is that there have been nets on the ice and they have never gotten (laughs) the goaltending they've needed to win games. Um, I think that they have addressed this issue. I think Scott Darling is going to get not just the workload, he's going to get the majority of it. Uh, You should probably expect him to play 55, 60 games at a minimum. Carolina needs him to play at least average, if not better, for NHL starter standards. If they get that, I mean, look out. I mean, the blue line is so good. They have a really young core, a lot of good, talented players on, on the roster both at both position groups. They just need to go through a season or even half of a season without the goaltending failing them time and time again. That's that's If they get that, I think Carolina can easily slide into that fourth spot. But I, I do think we, even the staff community, people who are so high up on the Carolina Hurricanes, are would be a bit overconfident to say, like, this is a thing. And I don't think this is the case. But it's it's hard to just say, okay, well, Scott Darling fixes the issue and Carolina is going to yeah. be great. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Like, this, this problem is, this is now year three of us saying, like, yeah, Carolina is definitely going to be better. And at least in the, at least this year, they've changed who's playing in position. But we were even betting on Cam Ward regression, and no one liked Cam Ward. But we were saying, okay, maybe Cam Ward will be marginally better. And it never happened. And it, it just speaks to how impactful bad goaltending or how big of a drag bad goaltending can be on your team. Um, so, it, like, again, it's, it's perceived with caution, again, for the Hurricanes this year. I still think Columbus is a pretty good roster. I don't think they were nearly as good as they showed last year. A lot of PDO, a lot of incredible percentages, both in save percentage and shooting percentage front for most of the year. Um, I, I saw they've got some. They've got some still business to take care of. I think. I think I saw Josh Anderson had requested a trade yeah, as, as like recently that. as today. Uh, so there's some interesting stuff floating around that team. But but Columbus is in a bind here. Like even if Columbus, even if Columbus plays reasonably as well as they did last year, it's kind of hard to see if they could knock out anyone in the top three. Like, Pittsburgh and Washington are just so good. And the Rangers, again, I think this is one team that maybe the stats people have missed on historically, in in part because even like even last year, where Henrik Lundqvist didn't have a great year, they are such a good counterattacking team. It's actually mind-blowing how good of a counterattacking team they are. They have used their speed as effectively as any team I could think of in the NHL. And I think they've been able to skirt some of their average or middling shot differential numbers by way of that and great goaltending. But even last year, like they didn't get a great season out of Henrik Lundqvist, and they still made the playoffs. So, I, again, I, I still see the Rangers in that top three. Washington has a chance to be the best team in the league. So does Pittsburgh, for that matter. Um, and then, yeah, and then it's going to be a, a dogfight between Carolina and Columbus, I think, for that four spot. I think we need to talk about Washington. You're pretty high on them. You don't think they're going to uh, – buy, I mean, I, I think they're going to go from President's Trophy 100 and whatever points a year to like 95, 98. I don't think they're going to regress majorly, but they lost uh, They lost some important guys in the offseason. And a lot of people seem to be thinking uh, more in line with me, but you're high on them, eh? 
Um, I, I would say somewhere in the middle of that. I think Pittsburgh is probably, like if I was racking stacking them, I think Pittsburgh is my divisional favorite. Um, I could see them fighting with New York for that two spot. Um, but I could see them finishing with 100, 102 points. And the reason why is this. I mean, this, this to me is a kind of a smoking gun argument. Who is the best goaltender in the league? If you, if you think about that question and the name Braden Holtby comes into mind, one, I think that's totally fair. And two, that's kind of my point. This is not the same capital team from four, five, six, seven years ago where goaltending was always a question mark. Goaltending is the most steady position they have. And even with the loss of some talent up front, another year, another more miles on Alexander Ovechkin, like those things aren't great. And one of the reasons why I think they're going to be a little less competitive this year than, than maybe where they were a year ago. Let's, let's not overstate that the biggest driver of success in the NHL. Again, this is pertinent to the Carolina question is goaltending. And maybe no team in the league, you could even make the argument that, that Washington has Montreal on this front. And that is maybe no team in the league has their goaltending position figured out more than the Washington Capitals. And if they are getting that plus 51, 52% of the shot share, like again, go as a, as a, as an exercise, go show, go, go to any stats in the modern era, go find a team that got about 51 or 52% of the shot share. A very good power play. We they, we don't expect that to go away, right? And a top two or three goaltending unit goes see where they finished historically, and, and that's kind of where I'm at on the Capitals. Like, yeah, this is, that's a far cry from being a Stanley Cup contender, but I I, I struggle with the idea that they're going to regress that far. Okay, and uh, the Penguins. I mean, they didn't they didn't make any major changes. I think the only uh, name that that's of of some impact is Nick Benino left, but. They're basically returning the same high-level, high-level guys, and uh, the defense, Latang is 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 gonna presumably be okay this year. We'll see if he lasts the full season. Um, their goaltending, Matt Murray, is is finally the dude there. Um, are you are you thinking um, they are the true uh, juggernaut or the true favorite in the East, or do you think there's another team out there? It's a good question. I. I think they are in the boat of Pittsburgh, Washington, Tampa Bay. And, and I don't know what that order looks like, but I, I, I don't think they are easily discernibly different or, or discernibly different from a team like Tampa Bay. Because again, what we've seen with the Penguins is that they've sacrificed a lot of depth to keep those contracts on the books. And by the way, any team in the world would be doing that. Um, but, but their depth has kind of fluctuated in productivity from time to time. Uh, they, Chris Tang being healthy for 75 games would make them the consensus number number one, in my opinion. But again, at some point, it's like it's like every year watching Tyler Eifer, Jordan Reed in fantasy football, and it's like, man, this this guy, he's gonna have a great year. And then by week three, it's always something. And I love Chris Tang. I love watching him play. But the guy can't stay healthy. And and at some point, in our forecasting, we need to take into account that it's more likely than not Latang does yeah. not play a full season. And I think we might be at that point. Um, and I'm, I don't want it to be unfair to Latang, but it just empirically that, that really hasn't happened. Um, the, the, other, the other piece, I guess, is for, for the sake of karma and the, the lack of uh, goodwill that they have built with all stuff that's gone on in the last week or two, I wouldn't hate to see them struggle out of the gate. Uh, just... I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I hate bringing this stuff up, but it, it, it's kind of mind-blowing how they've inserted themselves into the grander scheme of a political discussion that they didn't seem to realize the magnitude of, nor did the NHL for that matter. That, that to me is like the big storyline. Like, the team is going to be fine. I, I just am kind of perplexed at how ass-backwards that whole 
statement was by by the Penguins and by extension the NHL last Sunday. Like I, I was, that was the only thing that was not predictable about the Penguins. Like they'll be fine. They're going to be in the playoffs. They'll probably win the division. I, I don't. The off ice stuff I did not see coming, and it, it's kind of left me confused as a hockey fan. Yeah, and you know I I. I failed to bring this up to you before we started, but I spoke to Chris Watkins. Uh, I don't know if you know him on Twitter. Um, he goes by like YOLO something or another. Um, we, spoke, sure. we, we spoke and, and I wanted to have him on as, as a different voice, a different perspective. Um, so I have him on as like sort of a 10 minute intro to this podcast because it's a timely topic. Um, so that'll be addressed at the start of the podcast as, as a black man living in, in the States who watches hockey, loves hockey um, analyzes hockey. I'm curious from your perspective, you're also another American. Coincidentally, you know, if you include Matthew Collar of, of the part one of this, uh, this preview, it's been three Americans on and, and, and me and Matt spoke about it too. So, um, what's your general take on, on what's happened in the last few days? Uh, Joel Ward coming out today and saying he's not going to kneel, um, but also really eloquently, uh, stating that, that he's not happy with the, with the state of, of what's going on in the States. Uh, you're a guy who lives in America. What what's going on in in your head? So so one of the things that's been talked about extensively and will continue to be talked about, I'm sure, um, is is the merits of an anthem protest. And it's not whether it is or is not an anthem protest. I do not think it's an anthem protest. I think it's a protest for human rights, decency, police brutality, whatever you want to go down the list on. That's what I think is the true protest. But let's let's put that debate even aside. Even though I don't think it's much of a debate, let's put that aside. Let's just focus strictly on what the Penguins decide right. here. Yes. The Penguins, in a presidency that is unlike no other ever before, no one would disagree with this comment. We went through, by the way, a very different political climate, climate between George Bush and President Obama. And at no point did you hear Republicans or Democrats, if this was a truly political partisan issue, say, hey, man, this team shouldn't go there. George Bush did this and this war was illegal. And then, or, you know, Republicans saying, hey, you know, what, what Barack Obama is doing in Syria is illegal. The people shouldn't go. Like, I, I think people realize that the president, presidency is a very, very complex issue and that going to the White House doesn't necessarily mean, it, it doesn't necessarily mean certain things. It doesn't necessarily mean that you voted for that president yeah. or, or agree with every single thing he's ever done. Um, but it is an honor. The, the, the difference in this climate is that this president is such a far cry from anything that's really ever happened before. And I think a lot of people are struggling with, oh, this is different. Like, if you even read the Pittsburgh Penguins statement, it's, hey, guys, like, everyone's been there before. This is just normal. This is status quo. And it's like, no, this isn't normal. This isn't status quo. No president predating Trump has done certain some of the things that he has done on camera, off camera, on the record, off the record whatever you want to call it. And what the Penguins have done is inserted themselves into the larger discussion. So let's even assume, by the way, let's set another thing aside. Let's assume that going to the White House is not really a debate. It's not really an objectionable decision and that it's fine for the Penguins to go. Whether you're not a group that, let's put that aside. Okay. Why did the Penguins, in the midst of all of the NFL and NBA coming out and saying, no, this is ridiculous, this is wrong, this is why we're standing up. This is why we're pushing back on your statement specifically to our league. Why did the NHL and the Pittsburgh Penguins feel the need to stand up in the midst of all of that happening in real time and say, actually, we disagree, and it would be a great honor to be in the White House? That, that is what blew my mind. That was what was so bizarre. They didn't need to issue that statement. They didn't need to comment on it. 
Whether or not their PR guys were getting buried in emails is one thing, but the organization did not have to do it in that manner. And what it's done is it's really painted them in a bad light, and it's painted the NHL in a bad light. And people say, stick to sports, it's not about politics. I, I, if you go look back on my timeline, the first reaction I had to the Penguins posting that, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, was, okay, it'll be three hours before Trump's retweeting this and calling Pittsburgh a great team. Quite literally, three hours later, it's exactly what happened. <laughs> so predictable. It's, it's become now that the Penguins are a pawn in the overall game of whether Trump is wrong or right or a great leader or a terrible leader. And by extension, they have done this to themselves. They did not need to release a statement. They did not need to do it at that time. They chose to do both. I I think some people on, on the left side of the political spectrum would say that the reasons why they did that were if not nefarious, you can kind of point to the racial divide in our league and kind of the makeup of our league and the political climate of our league versus some of the other leagues, and I think they would be right. But, uh, again, that's why I say put all of these even debatable issues aside. The question I don't understand is why on Sunday and why simultaneously with the Pittsburgh Steelers saying, no, we're going to sit in our locker room, that's how bad this has gotten. Why did the Penguins have to come out and do the total opposite? It's it's perplexing to me. Yeah, the timing – um, even just if you think about it in regards to like the privilege, the once in a lifetime opportunity, like they did that last year. So it's not like you, it's, it's like this great, you know, it's not like Sidney Crosby needs to go back to the white house. If they had, they had such an easy opportunity to join the party to, um, to do like to take a see there. And uh, the thing is, is that the penguins have said they didn't take a stance by doing this, but really they, they did the opposite. They took a stance by doing it. If 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 they if they had rejected, then that's more of sort of you know good PR, following the pack, et cetera, et cetera. Right. This way, they're actually making themselves stand out. They're making it political in in a way because we all know that Donald Trump, when they go to the White House, let's assume that they they follow through and they show up. Like Trump's going to be going off the rails with some sort of speech about about who knows what and then the penguins are going to be tied in with it Sidney crosby's gonna that picture of him with with the president's gonna be you know it's there forever all over it's, it's there forever all over it's gonna be ever on every single sports and and media outlet and twitter and everything it's gonna be everywhere and, and the penguins are gonna say well this is this is normal operating you know sop this is fine and and i i just don't think they've realized or take into account the magnitude of what they are doing and and why they're doing it. Oh, and by the way, we're, maybe worst of all, they're not going to the White House in February. They're going in two weeks. Yeah. I mean, it is nothing will have simmered down by then. This thing is fresh on people's minds. And here come the Penguins and the NHL, in my opinion, a bunch of empty suits marching in line, as they always do, to a White House that is, quite frankly, I mean, there's no way around it. Their White House is under siege and many as many people as, as you can see on both sides of the political aisle are pretty much sprinting away from the White House. The Penguins are running to it. Well, on that note, <laughs> uh, thanks, Travis, <laughs> for, for joining me and uh, talking hockey, talking a bit about politics, I guess. Um, if people want to check you out, they can go to tsn.ca and also to your Twitter, which off the top of my head, I don't remember. What is your Twitter? Uh, at at Mattis John. <laughs> I think it's at Travis. No, it's at uh, Travis Yost. Is it just straight Travis Yost? Straight Travis Yost. Awesome. Okay, thanks again, Travis, and we'll talk soon. All right, take care, John.